This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. title didn't alert you, today's episode features mature themes and language. Please take care as you need to. While I was on my June sabbatical, we got an email that had our team saying yes out loud. The pitch came from Old Pros, a nonprofit media organization working to change the status of sex workers in society. Elise quickly arranged an interview, which Sarah recorded in short order. Why did this email stand out in the sea of pitches that we receive each week? sex work had not been on our whiteboard of topics for this quarter. I think it's because we see sex and our attitudes about sex at the root of many, if not most, of our major controversies. You can't have a real conversation about abortion without talking about sex. And just a quick shout out here to Ohio voters for getting to the polls in August in order to keep the rules the same for their November abortion initiative. Gender identity and masculinity the whole of the Barbie movie, pretty much everything connected to what Republicans love to term as wokeness, conspiracy theories, legitimate concerns about trafficking and human dignity, all of it relates to sex. And you really can't have a complete conversation about sex without talking about sex work. The criminalization of sex work in particular says so much about the gaps between who we say we want to protect and who we actually protect. What we say is dangerous and what is actually dangerous. We know this topic will push a lot of buttons. When I try to step back and make a list of declarative sentences expressing my opinions about sex work, the list is as convoluted and contradictory as it gets. It's also short. I have a lot more questions than sentences. And that's why I think the conversation you're about to hear is so valuable. You probably won't agree with everything you hear. That's not the point. The point is to keep thinking and keep listening and keep working toward a world with a much healthier perspective on sex. With that goal in mind, here's Sarah and Caitlin Bailey. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, we all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of make my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season that I have nice looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. Traditionally, financial planning advice is either only for those who are already wealthy or salespeople calling themselves financial advisors who say they'll give you free financial advice, but really just sell products to earn commissions. 
Fearless Finance takes a dramatic departure from either of those traditional models. Their entire business is built on making financial advice accessible and affordable because we know that financial literacy, stress reduction, and financial security are critical to overall well-being. I'm a little bit obsessed with Elizabeth, our Fearless Finance Advisor. I've had an array of advisors in the past who answered questions like, should we be spending less on this with evasive answers like, it depends on your priorities. Not Elizabeth. She answers with actually helpful guidelines. You're spending more than the average family of five, or I'd like to see this increase by 6%. Uh, thank you. This is Fearless Finance's mission, to make advice affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually and they charge you by the hour. You only pay for the time you use down to a quarter hour. Their planners meet with you where you are on your financial journey, no judgment. Visit fearlessfinance.com today. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit and you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use the code pantsuit. That's fearlessfinance.com and use code pantsuit for $50 off your first planning meeting. Caitlin Bailey is a sex worker rights advocate, comedian, and writer. She is the founder and executive director of Old Prose, a nonprofit media organization creating conditions to change the status of sex workers in society. And she hosts the Oldest Profession podcast. Caitlin, welcome to Pantsu Politics. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Can I tell you something really weird but relevant about Pantsu Politics? Sure. Okay. So if you were to log on to the backside of pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, our website, you would find that pretty consistently in the top five pages on our podcast is a page called Strippers versus Prostitutes, a comparison. It is a term paper I wrote 20 plus years ago. Wow. That I referenced on a show in 2016 and that we then posted the text of And it just gets consistent traffic, which I just think goes to show that there are so many questions about sex work that don't go answered, that don't go discussed. And the fact that this like weird 20 plus year old term paper I wrote gets so much traffic is proof of that. Yeah, I absolutely think that there is an appetite for more information about sex worker rights, sex worker politics, and what we focus on, which is sex worker history. Yeah, I think that's so true. Now, I'm intrigued when I was reading your bio, you describe yourself as coming out as a sex worker in 2015. I love that language. Tell me more about that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, the the shame and stigma around sex work, I think, is deeply connected mm-hmm. to the LGBTQ plus movement. Sex workers have always been a part of that movement. You know, the shot glass heard around the world that was thrown by Marsha P. Johnson that started the Stonewall riots that was led by sex workers. Same, same with Compton's Cafeteria, which predates Stonewall by a few years. And the, you know, Sex workers and members of the queer community have always shared spaces and a a shared stigma and rights that threaten one of us, right? Whether Mm. you're talking about trans kids, whether you're talking about censorship on porn or erotic materials or access to basic reproductive health care or information, medically accurate sex ed, we are all in this together. So, I had to, in order to take on the public role that I have through old prose and telling my story as a sex worker, I needed to go through a coming out process, which I think, like for many folks, started with me telling strangers and, you know, lower stakes folks and eventually led up to me coming out to my family, um, which was especially challenging with my my dad, who, you know, spent 30 years in the Army. He was a Green Beret. And we you know, loved each other very much and have a lot of respect for each other. And I knew that so much of his identity as a good dad was wrapped up in, you know, whether or not I chose to engage in this work or chose to to tell my story publicly. And we eventually got to a really great place, my dad and I, but it took a couple of years of really 
rewriting those narratives and showing up and having really hard conversations. Well, you're a comedian. And so I know you'll understand like when those bits bubble up and mm-hmm. they touch something. The second you said that, I thought about the Chris Rock bit. Oh, keep yeah. Her, keep her off the pole. Your only job is to keep her off the pole. Yeah. And how we laugh, but we're laughing because we want to talk about something because it's touching on something much, much deeper. Absolutely. And I wonder, as you look through this history, I love the historical emphasis. What other threads are you picking up? What other patterns are you seeing when we talk about sex work and we talk about the ways we think about it culturally and the way we legislate it and do policy around it? Well, sex worker rights and the criminalization of abortion and contraception have a shared history, Mm. right? This dates back to the Comstock law of the 1870s, right? Anthony Comstock built his career attacking Victoria Woodhull, who was the first woman to open up a brokerage uh, firm on Wall Street, the first woman to address Congress on the issue of suffrage. First woman to run for president. And the first woman to run for president, right? But many people have not heard about her because she was also a sex worker. And this demonization of loose women and this demonization of public women, which is sometimes a synonym for sex worker, but is just as often a synonym for a woman literally taking up space in public. Mm. And so we criminalized abortion, contraception, prostitution, and alcohol all at the same time. And that was during the progressive era here in the U.S. And we did a lot of it in the name of specifically protecting white women. You know, one of the major pieces of national legislation on this issue is the Mann Act, which is also known as the White Slave Law. And like many of our anti-trafficking laws today, this was sold to the American people as a way of protecting vulnerable women. But we didn't protect any women from the people who were actually committing violence against us. Instead, we made it a crime to transport women across state lines for immoral purposes, which led to criminalizing very consensual interracial relationships Mm. and inconveniencing a lot of women in show business on their way to their next gig. We talked about this. We had Monique Melton on, who's a, a Black influencer who went viral during the the George Floyd protest and mm-hmm. that sort of moment in American history. And I said, what happened there reminds me of that time in the progressive era where it's like you want to argue, like, give us voting rights, give us more rights because we're like morally better. But that shit is a trap. <laughs> that yeah. is a trap. Yes. Like when you hold someone up, it's sort of like, you know, the the wise Indian. Like when you're saying we're different because we're better, like that is a that's a trap. Like, don't fall for it. There's a lot of historical incidences where because you just you shut off your humanity. It's just another form of dehumanization where you don't allow for the nuances and complexity. And you say, we deserve this treatment because we're human, not because we're special. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I have it right here. Rights, not rescue. Right. Mm. Which is one of the one of the many phrases that we have. But one of the main problems is that we've conflated you know, violent exploitation with prostitution. Prostitution has become a symbol of exploitation in this country, which means we spend an incredible amount of energy trying to suppress or eradicate the oldest profession, which actually distracts us from our shared goal of ending or reducing exploitation. So there are absolutely adult consensual sex workers. We're a huge part of the market. We've always been innovators and early adopters at the front lines of, you know, arts, technology, financial services. And there is absolutely exploitation both in the sex industry and also in every other labor sector. Mm. According to the Labor Department's own numbers, the overwhelming majority of people who are violently exploited in this country work in agriculture, domestic labor, mining, food and bev. But we aren't devoting any resources to help raising the negotiating power of those workers. Instead, we're using the apparatus of the state to sick, you know, ice on undocumented workers or we're paying law enforcement to crack down on consensual adult sex workers. And we're selling all of this as somehow being anti-trafficking. But anti-prostitution does not equal anti-trafficking and vice versa. I think that distinction between sexualization and exploitation is so important and so key. And again, 
talking about the history, not just in the United States. You know, I just did a, a book report on our premium channel about a book about modern Ireland called We Don't Know Ourselves. And it was so wild. I was reading about how, you know, the Catholic Church was so powerful in Ireland, obviously, in the 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 sort of anti-sexualization sexualized everything. Like it was just like, don't think about sex, don't think about sex, don't have premarital sex, don't have, you know, don't use birth control, sex, 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 sex. And at the same time, I was watching Shiny Happy People, that documentary about the Duggars. Same yeah. thing. It was like this one had this great line where she was like, if somebody's like, don't look at your sister's boobs, don't look at your sister's boobs. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do? You look at your sister's boobs. And like and inside those those environments where you have such a hypersexualized mindset, it creates ripe environments for exploitation because you're focusing on the sexualization and not the exploitation and not the abuse and not the violence. And I think specifically something that that documentary, Shiny Happy People, does so well is drawing a line between how the stigma and shame around sexuality really disempowers yep. victims from any kind of self-advocacy. And I mean, if you want to talk about organized sex trafficking— the Catholic Church is a really great example of mm -hmm. an institution that has invested a huge amount of resources into sexually exploiting not just women, but also children. Um, you know, something that we talk about at the Oldest Profession podcast and also in my show is that the Catholic Church was actually the largest brothel owner in Europe for a period of 400 years. Wow. Yeah. And they were able to get away with that with this, you know, like sort of the Madonna whore complex and the demonization of women. And I think it's so important, especially for contemporary feminists to understand that whore phobia and the stigma against sex workers is the foundation of misogyny. Mm. And that policing prostitution is not protection. It's patriarchy. It's coercive control. Because the way that you police prostitution is that you govern, you dictate, you control where women go, who they talk to, what they wear. And it continues to shock me that this is still a debate amongst contemporary feminists where there is uh, an antagonism between sex workers and, you know, incredible heroes of the feminist movement like Gloria Steinem, who continue to advocate for policies that direct law enforcement to continue to harass and subjugate and control people who are engaging in work that is older than money and has always been a path towards a kind of liberation, right? Purchasing power is important, especially when we're talking about the hundreds, if not thousands of years before women had property rights. Mm, yeah. No, I think that makes so much sense. And I think this idea that when you criminalize prostitution, I mean, I, again, when I was writing that term paper, I remember, I don't even remember what course it was in, but I do remember learning a lot about the decriminalization of prostitution. It made so much sense to me. Of course, if you say what you're doing is illegal and then someone abuses you, be it a client, be it a pimp, be it whatever, well, are you going to go to the police? No, because you're also you breaking the law. You're vulnerable exactly. if you go to the police. Exactly. And I think there are, you know, certain progressive circles where that's accepted. And I, I really want to get to the more like policy legislative side. But I think culturally, I think it's so interesting to me that you say, like, we're going to have to have a cultural conversation and like cultural change. And look, here's here's where I think there's an application about this that is much harder for progressive circles, much harder for everybody. I think this is true when it comes to child sex abuse and pedophiles. When you say, when I go around in my community and I see on the back of a truck, murder your local pedophile, does that create an environment where someone can report something problematic or if they feel or if they see something with their family members, they feel comfortable going to the police or they feel comfortable saying, I'm having these thoughts? Of course not. Like, of course they don't feel comfortable saying that. You create this. When you put it in the dark, you are right for exploitation. Especially in an environment where we are, again, increasingly conflating, right, Yep. Visibly queer folks, right? Yep. Trans folks with pedophilia and sexual exploitation. And that is a very old story, and it is deeply connected to the history of sex worker rights and moving towards a future where we can share our wisdom and participate in the communities that we're already a part of. And I think it's just important to, to, to articulate, too, like, it's not like we're going to get to some utopia where... Sex and exploitation and violence, I don't want to say are 
connected, but are tied up when a, it's a deeply vulnerable act. There's a lot going on there. How do you make sense of that? Like, sure. we're not trying to get somewhere where we fix it and there's no longer violence and exploitation tied up with matters of sex. So how do you how do you piece that apart in your own mind? Well, we know that decriminalization of sex work is the only policy that reduces violence. And mm. the reason that that is, is because it increases the negotiating power of providers. You know, and this isn't just me saying this. This is backed up by the World Health Organization, Amnesty International, human rights organizations around the world. We've implemented a lot of policies. You know, New Zealand decriminalized prostitution in 2003. And when they did an analysis and a report came out in 2015, they found that sex workers were reporting less violence more comfort in declining clients that they didn't mm. feel safe with. And I think critically, more comfort reporting crimes committed against them to the police for exactly what you were saying before. We know that we don't see these results when you talk about legalization or regulation. We don't see these results when we're talking about end-demand policies or criminalizing clients or third-party folks. And we certainly don't see those results with criminalized right. prostitution. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We use our phones for everything at this point, but did you know that you can use it for some sexy me time? Don't worry, your fantasies are safe with Dipsy. Just don't forget to use your headphones. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library, a fantasy series with vampires, Greek gods, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy written stories to read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time. Explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or even heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. My son Oliver is almost two. The desire for more hours in the day has never been more real for me in my life. An extra hour for reading, for sleeping, for working, for playing, I could use any of it. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to then make it a priority. Therapy can help you figure that out, help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Just last week, my mom actually asked me about my experience with BetterHelp after hearing ads like this one for it. And I'm telling you what I told her. BetterHelp was the perfect solution for me in a time of my life when I had too many plates to juggle, but still very much needed to talk to someone about the experience of keeping all those plates in the air. BetterHelp made therapy easy and accessible right when those were qualities I needed most. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You just fill out a very brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. like to have the cultural conversation, you have to tease apart this sense of like the reality. We're not telling you we're creating a utopia because then people don't believe you. But also, I think there's a deep sense with sex, even though we've come so far in so mm -hmm. many areas, LGBTQ rights, facing the sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, all these things to tell people like it doesn't have to be like that way. Like there's this sense of 
intractability, I think, sometimes when you talk about our sexual culture. When I'm talking to, you know, my fellow progressives, folks that have spent a lot of time in in reproductive justice, or, you know, I cut my teeth as a political advocate, as an abortion rights advocate. And so I think that there's a distinction between being pro-abortion and pro-choice. And you can recognize that this is a difficult personal decision, while also recognizing that criminalizing abortion Mm. doesn't make it go away. It only makes it less safe. And the same can be said for prostitution policy, right? People engage in sex work on the full spectrum of choice, circumstance and coercion as they do with any job and as they also do when seeking abortion care. But what we know is that criminalizing this or pushing it further underground, again, doesn't eliminate, but it does make it less safe for everyone involved. Right. It's like you're you're not saying we're going to fix it, but we're going to step in the right direction. And I wonder, do you have any success or momentum or even just sort of anecdotal experiences with right wing people who are concerned about the power of the government and don't want the power of the government in certain places? Like, is there any movement there? Because, I, you know, I've had movement with my religious friends, deeply religious friends around abortion on this saying like, We don't have to talk about the morality or ethics of this. We need to talk about, is the government making it worse or better? Correct. Absolutely. And so I think there are a lot of, you know, principled libertarians. The Libertarian Party was the first to adopt the decriminalization of sex work as part of their party platform. Mm. There are folks on the right that are interested in getting the government out of people's bedrooms or massage parlors or other, you know, private spaces. But this is really a bipartisan issue. You know, Democrats have supported some really bad policies when Mm. it comes to porn and prostitution over the years. And so, you know, I love to blame the right, but I think there's a lot of shared responsibility and there has to be a lot of cultural movement across the board. I think the most important demographic to move on this issue are feminists who have never engaged in sex work themselves and recognizing that there's a lot of shared issues right, between folks that engage in this and just basic fundamental rights for women who want to participate in public life. How do you talk about or work through the policy implications of that distinction between sex work and porn? Like, where are the are there policy differences with the the decriminalization there? Because it is it is different. And I think I would think you'd get a little more fear and pushback with porn because that affects a lot more people, at least in theory, than prostitution. I mean, I think it's important to say that the the stigma and shame and false narratives is shared, right? Sex work is a really broad umbrella term that includes, you know, porn performers, content creators, legal strippers, criminalized full-service providers, dominatrixes, phone sex operators. I want to include Hooters waitresses because we're trying to, you know, mm. build, build a big tent. Anyone that exchanges any kind of erotic labor, right, for money or something of value, which is a, a really broad and expansive thing, right? And this is something that predates us as a species, right? This is literally older than money. Right now, you know, full service sex workers and also content creators have a lot of the same shared battle space, right? Because Mm. we've all been using the internet to connect, schedule and screen our clients. And so one of the activating moments for me was in 2018 when Donald Trump signed SESTA-FOSTA into law. That's a federal law that stands for Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking and Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. This is when Backpage was seized by the FBI, Mm -hmm. Craigslist Erotic Services went away, and all of the platforms that sex workers had been using to safely schedule and screen our clients, right? This was, if you want to talk about cutting pimps or potentially uh, abusive third-party folks out uh, yeah, of the Yeah, it was like equation. decentralizing. Exactly. The, you know, the, these message boards and platforms were, were great for us. And so now content creators, um, even legal content creators, are facing very similar barriers with this conflation, right, of sexual expression with violent exploitation. Mm. So there are all of these laws that are now limiting, you know, like Visa and MasterCard from processing on OnlyFans or porn sites. They're trying to make users or viewers of porn upload their ID, which, you know, I would never encourage anyone to put themselves on a stigmatized list. Right. And so there's a lot of shared cultural fights, even if the sort of minutia of the the different laws that we face are different. 
And that's so hard because I know a lot of those laws came about because of, you know, research into some of these platforms where teen girls were getting videos and stuff posted without their permission and couldn't get them taken down. So how do you see that the process is that, again, protect against Mm -hmm. exploitation without further criminalizing legitimate sex work? Absolutely. I think the problem with, you know, criminalizing or trying to aggressively repress erotic content, especially in the name of reducing exploitation, is that it paints everyone with a really broad brush, right? It's the same problem as like conflating clients with predators, right? Mm. We need to be able to make these distinctions. So if all porn is exploitation, then when you report revenge porn, right, or when you report that your image is being used without your consent, even if you are, you know, an adult content creator, if you find that your content is being shared by third-party platforms where you're not profiting, that's a violation and you ought to be able to report that. But it, when we conflate all of it, right, as being exploitation, we lose the ability to make those distinctions. Mm. And, you know, this comes back to, you know, I think maybe an, an oversimplified call from the Me Too movement, right, of believe women, right? Listen to us. What we will tell you, sex workers will tell you, content creators will tell you what is and what is not consensual. We have so much to contribute about, you know, negotiated consent um, and being able to articulate and enforce boundaries when it comes to our bodies and our images. But we cannot do that when all erotic expression or all sex work is conflated with exploitation and violence. That's what happens, right? When you ex- when you conflate everyone and call everyone a victim, then you're protecting them and not listening to them. And you're thinking Correct. you know best, and they're in a situation that doesn't know best instead of saying, you don't have to start from scratch. They can tell you what they need. Like, they can empower it. But you have to empower, like, that cultural conversation is the empowerment part. So tell me how you got to the—I love the stand-up comedian aspect of this and the historical educational aspect of this. So how did you come to see that as such an important part of the process? Hmm. Where shall I begin? So working as a stand-up comedian, I obviously have very strong feelings about freedom of expression and being uh, an active agent in my own life. Mm. And so I had done sex work, you know, both uh, from coming from a place of, of curiosity and feeling very drawn to these stories. You know, I've been reading about courtesans since, you know, for as long as I can remember, I have been obsessed with sex workers in history. So it's sort of an innate interest of mine. But I also used sex work to subsidize my career in comedy, which is not unusual. Mm. Sex work has funded, I think, more, you know, students, artists and entrepreneurs than all of the grants combined. (laughs) But when SESTA-FOSTA passed in 2018 and I went to my fellow mostly male comedians, when I felt like this was an existential threat to freedom of expression on the internet, I was met with a lot of blank stares. Mm. People were not making that connection, I think because of, you know, some misogyny that was very much present in that community and not seeing women or especially sex workers as people. But, you know, that was sort of an activating moment for me. I became the, you know, founding director of communications for Decriminalized Sex Work, which is a national advocacy organization pursuing a state-by-state strategy to try to decriminalize sex work. And they're doing great work um, in 11 states across the country. But ultimately, I left that organization to start Old Pros because after speaking with legislators for, you know, two plus years, it became very clear to me that we are not going to get good policy change on this issue until we really invest in narrative and cultural change. Legislators are terrified of their own constituents when it comes to this issue. And I think it's really important for us to change the story about sex work. It's a necessary step to changing laws and ultimately the legal status of sex workers in our communities. And it's not like you could ignore it. It's a very popular subject matter in pop culture. If you just pretend like it doesn't exist, then that's what's filling the space. Well, then now that you're an expert, I have to ask you what you think are the, well, let's start with the worst portrayals of sex work in pop culture, like really famous ones that you think are truly terrible. Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, I'm assuming Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman, I think, is bad for 
many reasons. I mean, it's an endearing story, right? Like, there's nobody well that acted. walks away from that movie yeah. exactly thinking that you know uh, sh- Julia Roberts is the villain um, or victim in that story. But like, you know, what you see in the first twenty minutes of that film is that she's just really bad at her job, uh, mm-hmm. actually. But that's why we're supposed to like her, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Because if she was a good, good sex prostitute, worker, would she be right, a hero? Then she wouldn't. We have wouldn't been root rescued. for exactly. Right. Exactly. Yes. I know that there have been several terrible documentaries that have been oh, made about sex work. There is a really good one coming out called A Stroll. That's a history of sex work in the meatpacking um, district oh, okay. and the way that, you know, the trans community really came together and provided a lot of mutual aid and support in a society that had effectively failed them. And I think that's a story that is really present in sex work, right? Whether you're talking about brothels or online communities, sex workers are really have been provided a lot of care to the communities that they're a part of. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Let me tell you, maybe it's because I came of age with Pretty Woman. And so this narrative was implanted in my mind. I've watched a lot of pop culture. When you said courtesans, I immediately thought of Harlots, which I think is a great Harlots is great. So good. So well done. I thought I think the way they tease apart the difference between sort of high culture. Mm -hmm. This is back in the like, I guess it's probably like the 1700s. And the, like, sort of low income and the the wars they have between each other. It's a very female-focused show. Like, I think it's great. I used to love the—I think it was only on for a couple seasons with Billy Piper, the the Secret Diary of a Call Girl. I think that's the name of it. I thought that show— There's also The Deuce, which is very Yes, that's the one I was going to bring up. I'm so glad you couldn't—I couldn't remember the name of it. I'm so glad you remembered it. I (laughs) thought that show was— I mean, it's Maggie Gyllenhaal. I mean, she's not going to do a story about women in any profession without bringing, like, this nuanced, complex— performance. But I think that's, I mean, that's, you need that. If you're going to change the conversation, these like beautifully complicated, like with some real depth portrayals of sex work are going to be essential. It makes it sad. Uh, The Secret Life of a Call Girl is set present day, but the other two are so past oriented. I think you'll need more sort of, no, this, we're not just trying to rewrite history. We're trying to tell you right now that the present is different than you think it is. Yes, absolutely. I think that's so important. So tell us where, though, the legislative fight is right now. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, we all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of made my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see, after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season, that I have nice-looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Traditionally, the advice would be pick one. But thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ugh, ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka bra-plum. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. 
Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. That's code PODCAST15. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Well, we're going to work on this cultural conversation, but where's the legislative fight? Yeah, so the overwhelming majority of arrests in this country happen on the state level, right? And I think um, a really good example of this is what happened a couple of years ago with the Robert Kraft sting in South in South Florida. Do you remember this? No. Yeah, so Robert Kraft is the owner of the New England Patriots. He is a maybe famous or possibly infamous billionaire. I'm not a huge fan, but he was caught up in a sting that happened in South Florida. And and what happened was there were five different law enforcement agencies, three local police departments, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security. What? Who all invested more than six months in these elaborate schemes to install hidden cameras in these totally legally licensed massage parlors that were sometimes providing consensual sexual services, right? There were no community complaints. There was no allegation of trafficking or violence or anything that was happening. But they spread out. They installed all of these hidden cameras um, and recorded what I can only imagine was like the world's most boring. Um, and as a culmination of that investigation, they descended on, you know, I think it was four or five massage parlors and arrested all of these men. I think it was like 200 men and then 19 women. And they, uh, they threw themselves press conferences and they sold this narrative to the American people that they had rescued these sex slaves from this international sex trafficking ring. But when the dust settled, the only people who were actually facing criminal charges were the 19 women that they had ostensibly rescued from this very consensual, again, legally licensed massage parlor. Nobody arrested was under the age of 30. And Robert Kraft, who was the most, you know, famous person who was caught up in this thing, sort of became the face of it. But I think it's important to remember that he was a 70-year-old widower who paid a 45-year-old woman to massage a different part of his body. And as a taxpayer, I have a lot of questions about why the FBI and the Department Mm -hmm. of Homeland Security is involved in that non-issue. And I think it's also important for listeners to recognize that this is what so-called anti-trafficking efforts look like when they are conducted by law enforcement. And that is happening all over the country, right? That was just a very high-profile case that happened to get a lot of media attention. But these stings are happening everywhere, right? You have law enforcement officers that are effectively LARPing, right, as providers or potential clients. And they're arresting people for engaging in consensual adult sex work and selling that right to their local communities and tapping into this big, uh, you know, sort of pile of anti-trafficking money that is very aggressively committed to the false, you know, conflation between sex work and violent exploitation. So that's what most arrests look like. There are also some really bad federal laws. The first federal anti-prostitution law is also our first federal anti-immigration law. That's the Page Act of 1870, Mm. which criminalized the racist term uh, Mongolian women uh, from immigrating to the U.S. for immoral purposes. We see that language repeated again with the 1910 Mann Act or the White Slave Law, which made it a crime to transport women across state lines for immoral purposes. And then today's version of that is the SESTA-FOSTA law that, you know, Donald Trump signed into law, effectively trying to erase the oldest profession from the Internet that we helped build. Mm. So. There's a lot of federal repressive laws that make it difficult for folks to travel, makes it difficult. Um, You know, they're starting to use facial recognition technology to prevent uh, or to connect people to their ads 
online, making it difficult for sex workers to leave or reenter the country. But again, most of the arrests are happening on a state level. Uh, There's a lot of movement. um, I, you know, I don't know if you how policy nerdy uh, you want to get here. Oh, good. So there's actually a little known history, but Rhode Island kind of accidentally decriminalized (laughs) prostitution for a six year period between 2003 and 2009. It was a combination of Coyote, the first sex worker rights organization in the country, filed a lawsuit for sex discrimination in Rhode Island in the 1970s. And so the judge decided that the law, uh, because both buying and selling sexual services was criminalized, but only providers uh, who were overwhelmingly women were being um, arrested for that. So the, you know, the judge tasked the legislature with fixing the law because of, you know, sort of congressional incompetency. When they revisited that law, they maybe on purpose, maybe accidentally uh, um, uh, erased. It sounds like when they stumbled into the Senate and almost killed Daylight Savings Time until everybody freaked out about it. It was like nobody was watching. Nobody was nobody was watching. So in the 1970s, they rewrote the law, but nobody noticed this loophole, right? So people were still being arrested in Rhode Island for, you know, prostitution until 2003, when an attorney who was not a criminal attorney, a friend of his, uh, this is a little bit of a long story, but a friend of his came to him in a moment of panic and said, you know, my friend was just arrested for prostitution. Can you help? And he said, yes. And because he wasn't a criminal attorney, he was like, well, I better go look at the law. Oh, he saw the water. Yes. When he did that. Yeah. And so he he took the case in front of a judge, asked the judge to reread the statute. He agreed with his assessment. And so he started winning these cases until, you know, 2003. There was a lot of uh, newspaper and media coverage, and it became well known that it was not a crime to engage in consensual adult prostitution behind closed doors in a private space in Rhode Island. And that remained true until 2009 when they decriminalized prostitution. Oh, Lord. What's so exciting about this is that statisticians from, you know, universities and the California, researchers were like, the researchers, exactly a natural controlled experiment. So for this six year period where it was well known that you could not be arrested for engaging in adult consensual sex work, gonorrhea rates dropped 40 percent. 40 percent. Reported rapes dropped 30 percent. Wow. This policy is a policy that increases public safety and health. Wow. You want to reduce STIs. You want to reduce violence against women. Stop arresting people for engaging in the oldest profession. Wow, that's so interesting. So is this Mm -hmm. data being used in campaigns in other states? Yes. So this uh, we're doing our best to you know spread the good news about these studies and the public policy implications. There are also really great advocates in Vermont, Washington State, Washington, D.C., New Hampshire, Rhode Island, of course, New York, that are pushing legislators to think differently about the oldest profession. In New Hampshire, for example, there's a coalition between, you know, libertarians and progressive um, advocates to try to rewrite laws giving, you know, sex workers who are seeking medical services, making it a crime to discriminate against folks based on their profession, right? Mm. So that sex workers can tell their healthcare providers the truth about what they do. Wow. There was a recently a win in Rhode Island creating a study commission that is sort of forcing the legislature to acknowledge the impact of decriminalization. In New York, there are two competing bills that are making their way through the, the New York state legislature, one that would decriminalize sex work and the other that would criminalize clients or third party uh, folks, right, like Mm. managers or security folks, the people that sex workers hire to help them do their job more efficiently. So we are trying to fight that law and raise awareness around the one that would decriminalize sex work. Wow. A couple of years ago, there was a 14-hour hearing in Washington, D.C. on a bill that would have decriminalized sex work in the nation's capital. That bill failed, but as a result of the publicity, arrests in D.C. have dropped over 90 percent. Wow. So there is movement on this issue. Washington State, California, Oregon. Sex workers are increasingly being heard by our elected officials, and we are starting to be seen more and more as citizens and constituents and contributors to our communities. 
Sorry, I got a little emotional there. The yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is an emergent issue. This is this is really happening. And I'm just grateful for those voices. And I'm grateful. Yeah. I think I got a little emotional just because I know that takes enormous bravery because the cultural conversation is not where it should be. And I think anybody contributing to that in powerful ways will have such an impact. And I know you're one of those people. And I thank you so much for that work. Tell our listeners where they can learn more. You can learn more at oldprosonline.org. We send a newsletter out every Friday. That's a roundup of sex worker rights related news and content. There's a ton of resource guides and you can access all of that on our website. You can listen to the Oldest Profession podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you can see me live. I'm taking my one-woman show, which is a combination of stand-up comedy, history lecture, and personal storytelling, where I cover 10,000 years of history from a sex worker's perspective. Um, it's called Whore's Eye View, and I'll be touring <laughs> that show later in the fall. So you don't want to miss that. Please join our email list or follow us on social media at Old Pros Online. And there is just one thing that I wanted to leave your listeners with. Please. Which is, you do not have to be able to imagine yourself engaging in this work, right, in order to stand with sex workers mm -hmm. against criminalization. And I think it's really important for progressives to hear and really understand that it is impossible to help a group of people that you are hunting. Mm. So any effort to eradicate or suppress or erect barriers around this work really creates barriers to safety. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on Pantsuit Politics. Thank you. Thank you, Caitlin and Sarah, for that discussion. You heard a quick mention of the Backpage case in the conversation. The federal government has brought a host of charges against Backpage.com. The case has been a real journey. It will go to trial for a second time this month. Last week, I discussed the charges and the issues in that case in detail on our premium podcast, More to Say, so be sure to check that out. And then join us here again on Tuesday for the latest news and a look at what we got wrong about COVID. Until then, have the best weekend available to you. Pantsu Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our director of community engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. Catherine Vollmer. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Linda Daniel. Emily Neasley. The Pettins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Emily Helen Olson. Lee Shea McDonough. Morgan McHugh. Danny Osmond. Jen Ross. Sabrina Drago. Becca Dorval. Jeff Davis, Joshua Allen, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.